Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Page 158. Save for a short prologue, that's how far into Perdita Felician's biography you have to read before finding the mention of track and field, or as we call it now, athletics. You see, she has a lot more to tell you about. Those who follow sport intently know Perdita as the 2003 IAAF World Champion Hurdler. The casual fan remembers Perdita, Canadian Olympian, who faltered at, the, at Athens 2004 in the 100-meter hurdles final before a worldwide audience. But those that read My Mother's Daughter, a memoir of struggle and triumph, will get the comprehensive story when it's released on March 30th, almost a full year after its COVID-delayed initial release date of April 14, 2020. The recipe of a good sports memoir is really universal to what makes a good memoir across any spectrum the narrative, the nuance, and the details. Above all, a compelling and truthful base. One of the best in the past decade or so, in my opinion, was 2009's Open by Andre Agassi, ghostwritten by J.R. Moringer. My mother's daughter shares some of that DNA. And aside, a small part of that is due to the nature of her sport. She was only hyper-covered for a short time, as is the case with many Olympians. The spotlight can sear the ground they walk on for two and a half weeks every four years and then poof, they are gone. So there is a lot that is new here. Not like an athlete bio from one of the major sports league. Uh, those are, uh, as Nate would say, the ground is well tilled on. And, and basically, this is only a small factor in, in the overall factors of what makes this a great book. When you get down to it, Perdita honestly and earnestly illustrates an immigrant's tale by capturing her mother's journey from St. Lucia to Canada, where she began working as a nanny for wealthy Canadians. They got to know Catherine while vacationing in her country and sponsored her to come here. Through Perdita's description of Catherine's experience, you get an idea of what it's like to be dismissed and disregarded as having no real value other than your role but also what it's like to discover a new land with the buffer of your own community and the lens of an outsider. What makes it warm, what makes it cold, what makes you grateful, and what makes you pound your fist. Perdita does justice to the cultural fab fabric of the country in a similar way to Francis Ford Coppola when he did it in uh, Godfather II with Italian-Americans. You can feel it. Even if it doesn't directly intersect with what's relatable to your own, li own lineage economically or culturally, and the patois is a fantastic touch too. In writing this book, Perdita adds an important layer to the nation's history. Through her family story, you can draw out how the Caribbean or Caribbean diaspora has contributed and shaped Canadian culture at large. Focusing on athletics alone for a second, it's valuable for people to know that, for example, Ben Johnson was from Jamaica. 1996 100 meter gold medalist uh, Donovan Bailey was born in Jamaica. And the 4 by 100 meter winning relay team in those Olympics that he was a part of and he anchored was also, or did he lead off, Nate? Was he the anchor? Or did he yeah, lead ba off? I think Bailey anchored it. Anchored, yeah, okay, just making sure. Yeah, Bruni Surin, Haiti, Robert Esme, also Jamaica, Glenroy Gilbert, Trinidad and Tobago. And that just scratches the service. On the women's side, Charmaine Crooks, Angela Isianko, they can claim the same. Canadian athletics is where it is in large part because of where it came from. So as we hail them, let's hail the heritage which, from which they hail. Perdita was born here, but she shares that common heritage. How it translate to her mother's, translates to her mother's travise, travails mm -hmm. and success here, how Kathy's sacrifice allowed Perdita to fit in and then excel as a first-generation Canadian is a big reason why I could see this book being part of the curriculum in English class, classes going forward. 
Her mother's hardships and small triumphs as a new Canadian uh, are one of the key avenues which make up this roadmap of Perdita's life to date. Remember, she's only 40. There are tough subjects like love, distance and reconciliation associated with her adoptive father Bruce, the search for her biological dad Dave, David, sorry, and even athletics fits in here, something that uh, came to her like second nature, sure, but it was also where her Olympic dream was shattered and it led to several years of, of harbored uh, bitterness. This, this is a study that I'm certain we will find out was a result of a lot of hard work and dedication. And speaking of dedication, Perdita's schedule is rammed right now. In addition to working at CBC as the occasional host of Road to the Olympic Games, gotta turn that phone off. Um, she also uh, hosts a new uh, athletic show on TVO called All Around Champion, which she's shooting right now. It's a kids' competitive sports show, and they're 12 to 14 hour days. And and so she's making time within that to talk to us uh, this this day. So we're happy for that and grateful. And to top it off. Uh, she and journalist husband Morgan Campbell balanced their busy schedules while raising young Nova, who is about to turn two years old. That's their daughter. Um, when she is a little older, someone may ask about her mom, the 10-time national champion, the world champion, the Olympian. And she can answer back with the full story as the Ianla Van Zant quote says to begin this book, one of the most valuable things a mother can give her daughter is her story as a woman. And that's what Perdita does for Nova, but also what she does for her mother, too. Indeed, Neil. Uh, absolutely second uh, your suggestion that my mother's daughter should be on school curricula. Uh, well, here in Ontario, where, where we uh, do the show from, it's you know imperative to make BIPOC stories, immigration stories, and women's stories you know fully part of helping young people at an impressionable age develop a sense of common humanity and be open to learning about people whose circumstances differ from theirs. You know, what does every teacher say about the students? Oh, I get them to buy in and, and care about this. What does every student in high school usually say at least once? When are we ever going to need to learn know this? Well, you need to have empathy and emotional intelligence. Those are lifetime skills. As you mentioned, Felicien's mom, Kathy Brown, was in the first that first generation of arrivals from the islands and she took the chance on canada you know this cold distant land because to her as a young woman in the 1970s it represented quote opportunity and adventure even with the strings attached such as you know precarious work exploitative employers you know being a single mom at time and also having to have the strength to disengage and get away from intimate partner violence although uh Felician shows that even her a domineering dad, you know, his behavior come, came under the heading of hurting people hurt. Uh, Felician told the CBC a while ago while she was assisting a charity drive for a women's and family shelter in London, Ontario, she was not open to this Well, she was an active athlete. And that's understandable. There's enough to deal with when, you know, every time you get into the block, you probably feel like the weight of the country's expectations are right on your scapula muscles uh you know be, but being a world champion athlete it doesn't remove the right to privacy and to work through those those issues on your own time those are uncomfortable subjects but they you know need to be out and discussed because it's a crucial part of giving the next generation the notion of public interest and supporting people you know you put texts such as uh my mother's daughter or the none of it set lacrosse movie the grizzlies in front of young eyes and minds and it helps with understanding how one's outlook and expectations you know change when they have you know impoverished circumstances you may be a little reluctant to you know you know reach for it like Felician describes you know being reluctant to 
to uh, do track and field when she was a, a young girl and you know other girls ran the relay with her having to drag literally drag her down the hall to, to the gym to get her sign up it is awesome that Perdita Felician is telling her and Kathy Brown's story on their terms. Now, as a general rule, Neil, you know, you and I, we don't rate the books we feature. There's there's enough enough of that out there that people don't need to put a number on everything. I think that's overdone. Our reading it is the rating. There's lots of places out there where you can crowdsource whether how many stars in a five a book should get or perish the thought. Just tune out all that galaxy brain. Uh, but when we were sent a review copy, I guess around February 2020, as you mentioned, Big Rona pushed the release back for a year, just like the uh, Tokyo Olympics. Uh, and, you know, we you know bunkered down with it. And for me, this was a really affecting read. Uh, you know, one you could not put down, and in another sense of the term, sometimes had to put down to allow, you know, all the feels to marinate. So it went deep down into the daughter-mother bond, uh, and, which was special, I guess, for Perdita Felician and Kathy Brown, because Felician was her mom's first Canadian-born child when she came into the world in 1980. You know, as a male reader, it definitely showed all the different dimensions of the mom-daughter relationship. Made me want to be a better older brother to my sister, who's the same age as Felician and also has her own family now, and hopefully a better large adult son to my mom, whose name is Kathy. Uh, so there now, Neil. Of course, you mentioned how Felician's a world champion. Uh, just to add a little Canadian context, you know, as you mentioned, sort of Olympic athletes can come and go, but she, her, you know, legend endures uh, because she was the first Canadian woman to win a gold medal. In fact, the first to just get on the medals podium at the World Athletics Championship when she won the hundred meters hurdles in uh, two thousand three, and then. You know, 2004, she was also the nation's first female gold medalist at the World Athletics Indoor Championships in the 60 meters hurdles. You sort of taking the long view now, it's almost been two decades. She was kind of out in front of it because uh, Canada, for people who don't know, we're kind of more of a winter Olympics nation than a summer Olympics nation. And it was, really wasn't until the 90s that we really took uh, athlete development seriously. We were kind of just like, okay, you know, go, go get that participation ribbon. Uh, <laughs> You know, ironically, when the when the boomer generation were all, you know, in their competitive years, <laughs> just kidding, uh, but not really. Uh, I think a good, if you ever can find it, a uh, book, uh, and I know bringing up this name when we're about to talk to a Canadian, you know, track and field legend, it might be like put, listing Lord Voldemort on a reference to your application to Hogwarts, but if you ever find Speed Trap by Charlie Francis, it'll be a good description of why Canada was a a straggler in uh, you know international sport up until the 90s when we started to invest more in it. And Nate, why don't you just tell tell the listeners who Charlie Francis is? Charlie Francis was the coach of Ben Johnson and the first guy who really had a program to bring out, you know, our better in uh track and in track and field, but obviously his uh, me- methods were controversial even before Seoul in 1988. Uh, anyway, so that's like I say, Felician was she came up, you know, when there wasn't necessarily you know huge funding and, and stuff like Quest for Gold and own the podium. Uh, you know, back then it was kind of like, well, you developed, you hopefully showed out in high school and with your track club as she did when she was a dominant you know force in offset. And she started hearing about her in the '90s when she was like winning like the hundred and two hundred and the hundred hurdles at offset and went off. And then you hoped someone would go off to the NCAA and get the right coach who wouldn't you know, sacrifice the athlete's long-term development for the glory of winning the conference title or whatever. Now, so that was how she came up. And now we're seeing, you know, more Canadians do well on the 
international athletic stage. We'll just yada yada over the Olymp- Olympic experience. But yeah, she stands alone. Only only four Canadian women have ever been on the medals podium at the at the World Championships, the one that's held in odd number of years. And I think Brianne Thiessen Eaton, the heptathlete and pentathlete, is the only other one to win a gold at the indoor worlds. Now, ultimately, you know, you are what you do. Uh, and Felicia, and he's using the platform she started building by being a world champion hurdler to, you know, share a story of sacrifice, striving, you know, struggle in sport, and one that's thought-provoking about, you know, maybe ways we can all, you know, make a little bit more of a contribution to, you know, give other people a bit more equality of opportunity. I read a great story today about how uh, Alfonso Davies, you know, the Canadian footballer is a stand-in for Bayern Munich and how he's, you know, as a ch- someone who was born in a refugee camp doing all this work to help resettle refugees. And he's just, a you know, a tw- what, 20 years old and he's already taking that on. Yeah. So anyways, to the point, we are grateful, you know, to have to finally talk about a book, long time coming, well worth the wait. Uh, and I, by the way, Neil, I have a shameless plug to make. Please. I've been called a shameless plug many times and it's <laughs> never stopped hurting. But no, uh, I, this gun kind of needs like a double Simpson screenshot of like Marge holding the, so you've decided to ruin your life pamphlet and also Homer talking about your ideas intrigue me and I wish to subscribe to your newsletter. Uh, yeah, I have a well, substack. Well, now you can. I have a substack now. It's called uh, Nate Freak Sports. Planning to write about four times a week uh, with all the answers to esoteric sports questions no one asked. Uh, so follow it at n8sager.com. Dot substack.com and that's that's like neat freak is that like a play on neat freak yeah like because i saw the store one day when i was on the go train going home i was like ah, all right i'm finally having that weirdly spelled uh short form of my name i can well, finally use it for something you know what check it out nate that's awesome that you started that you know there's there it's you know as, as shaky as the media industry is right now hmm. there's a lot of new avenues for people to explore and get their voice out and um I'm uh, applauding you for that. So, listeners, please uh, check out Nate's uh, Substack uh, at, at, at the info with the info he just gave you. Also, Nate will continue to write Nate's notes, uh, which have always been a good accompaniment to uh, this podcast, and we'll eventually get those up on our site. And I just want to bring up our site quickly before we do get to Perdita, because you can buy uh, all the books you hear about uh, through a link on our site, and. Um, and yeah, check it out. You can listen to all the episodes. It has links to all the different platforms. So go to sportslit.ca for that. And um, yes, thank you again for tuning in. And we cannot wait to talk to 2003 IAAF World 100 Meter Hurdles Champion, Perdita Felician. Welcome back to Sports Lit, Nate. Of course, we've been looking forward to this for or over a year now, as I'm sure Perdita has been. Uh, Perdita, welcome to Sports Lit. Hey, hi guys. Hey, listen, I'm I'm going to get right into the questions because I know you're on limited time. So, uh, I want to know how much trial and error went into releasing uh, this book in the way you wanted it to come across. Oh, a lot. Well, first, it was supposed to be tied up with the Olympics, and we saw what happened there, right? So. Right. <laughs> Um, it was delayed a year because of COVID, like everything else was. And uh, so it's, it's nice to finally, you know, have that fall start last year, like that pun. And then uh, and then get back to really having it ready to go in like a few days, really. The, uh, in terms of the way, you know, your voice really comes across well in this. So, I mean, how did you find that? I mean, uh, you obviously, you know, you're, you're, everyone knows you're the athlete, but how did you become this great writer? Yeah, you know, I've always felt like I was a strong writer, and when I decided to tell the story in 2014, 
I didn't really trust it to anyone else because, you know, I talk about things I've never discussed as an athlete and it's really sensitive. And I talk about, you know, being a child witness to domestic abuse and not having a home and so many different things. And, you know, I really knew I had to dig deep and I wanted to do it justice. And so there's no ghostwriter. It's all my words, my thoughts, my research. And I also went to the University of Chicago's uh, writer studio. So they have a two-year creative writing certificate. And I sat in the classroom for two years and wrote this thing. It took me a total of four, almost five. But I'm really, really proud because, you know, I approached it as an author, as a writer. And all due respect, it's not a jock book. You know, <laughs> it takes you halfway through the story to get any track and field, any real sport. Right. Um, that's by design. Yeah, and that, that was some curious because you drop in some references to it. What was specific to that program at the University of Chicago that really helped you, you know, sharpen the tools to shape and edit, the, you know, this you know, really well-written book? Yeah, you know, I think what I got was I got structure. So I, um, I had, a, you know, an instructor. I had, you know, peers who would critique my work, give me their feedback. I was reading a ton of of creative, creative nonfiction, memoir, short stories, and I was just consumed by it. I've always loved to read, I've always loved to write. Whenever since I was like a tween, I would keep a diary. And so, you know, writing was always something I thought I would, I would eventually get to one day, and I finally have. So that program really gave me the structure. And in fact, I'm having a launch on the night of the release. And, you know, I remember it's been like five years since I've been in the program, like 2016. I, I remember messaging all my teammates, not teammates, I'm still a jock, right? Messaging all my <laughs> classmates. And they're on. They're like, no, we'll be there. Like, we waited five years plus for this story. We're going to be there to back you up. So that's really exciting. Well, the mention of the diary may answer my next question. And there's uh, intricate details in this book that really draw out the narrative. Uh, the pink knitted outfit your mom had you in to meet David, I believe it was. Uh, what Vanette was wearing at the airport when she came to Canada. And the scent of the overripe bananas in your mom's kitchen when you had to tell her about the undisclosed injury. Was that all from, yeah. do you have a photographic memory or is that diary? Yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people wonder, like how do you know all these details, like really, you know, finite granular details. And a lot of it is through oral history, right? So, you know, my job as a reporter, I'm also trained reporting and I went to, you know, to Seneca, you know, to be a sports broadcaster. So those tools really came in handy. And I had to really just interrogate the people who were, you know, part of those scenes mm. and multiple people and, you know, cross-reference things. And I did a lot of research, you know, I flew to St. Lucia multiple times, went to their archives, um, you know, went to like look at old newspapers in Oshawa, Ontario to see like what was the climate like when my mom arrived, what was happening. Mm. And so I will say the stuff about what my family wears is really easy because we dressed, have you seen the cover of my book? Like <laughs> we <laughs> yeah. dressed pretty eccentrically, like it's, right. it's, it's like, it's like, you know, we always always dressed up for a thing. And so what my sister wore when she first arrived to Canada, that was a big deal for my mom. That was a big deal for my grandmother. And, and I remember what she wore, right? right? So that was my personal memory. But a lot of those things was me piecing together the memory of other people and putting all those things together into a scene. And, and what universal truths do you hope readers uh, find through your, you know, telling of your, you know, the long road to, I guess, you know, happiness for your family? You know, I think that we're, we're human and we're people and we're messy. Our lives are messy. And even though we try to make them look really neat and curated on Instagram, it's not the case. It is also the truth that, especially for my family, like it really doesn't matter how you begin. It doesn't matter what your origin story is, right? It really matters what you become, you know, and who you want to be. And my mother 
wanted to be more than, you know, a young child who was pulled out of school at the age of 12 so she could sell on the beach to rich white people to help her family make a living in St. Lucia. She wanted more than that. She wanted more than that for her children. And we got more than that because she was able um, to pursue it and to go in that direction, even though the road to it was really paved with hurdles. Huh. Well played. Um, there, there, there's a, a fairness to the pros, and I think it's probably best. To, and and you talked about it just a moment ago about things not being so cut and dry. Everything's messy, and and there's a fairness to the pros that probably best exemplified in the context around Bruce, uh, showing both yeah. sides of him. How extremely loving he was. He'd let you choose the TV channel, and you know, kiss you on the forehead, and go to all your meets, and pay for the hotel. And then there was the other side too. So how did that? Uh, how did that play out in the writing process? Was that one of the harder things? I mean, was there, were the things you leaned on from the University of Chicago course that helped you with that part? Or was it just, just did it just flow out naturally? You know, it was really difficult. And Bruce, you know, is my dad. And it was really difficult talking about him because he's extremely complex. And like you just highlighted, good on some days, not so good on some days. You know, really mean to my mother, but most times just really good to me. And as a, you know, six and seven year old, it's very confusing because mm. I love both my parents. It was really hard to get to those scenes, especially there's a scene where my dad is essentially kicking my mother out in the middle of the night and takes all her crap and throws it outside. To him, it's crap, but it's her, it's her life. And he was the last person that I told that I was writing this this memoir, and again, I said it took years to write this memoir. And so for years, my siblings knew, my nieces knew, you know, my partner knew, and my dad didn't know. And finally, when I realized, oh, Penguin Random House Canada bought this book and it's actually coming out, I should probably tell my dad. Right. And so it was years later that I finally, you know, had the, the meeting with him to tell him this was happening. And, you know, I highlight that in the book, I'm sure yeah. you know that, but it was really hard because... Here's the thing about like telling your story and your truth and your mess. Someone's going to be caught in that in those crosshairs, right? So to tell my story, I have to tell other people's story who might not want their story told, right? right? And here's the thing. The way that I see them is not necessarily the way people see themselves. But here they are having to confront, you know, my impression of them on the page. And not only do they have to see that, the entire world or whoever reads it has to see that, at least my version of them. And so that's really hard for me, right? Cause who, I don't want to hurt my family. I don't want to hurt my, my father. Um, but I, I, I don't think I've reconciled that. I don't know that I ever will. I, uh, I, I just before Nate jumps into the next question, I, I actually like how you said scenes because that really is what makes great narrative nonfiction, right? It's you're looking at this, you're not just chronicling things. You're not doing the play-by-play or the game report. Mm-hmm. You're actually creating scenes in these chapters and it, and and it that's what makes this a great book because you're you are actually no. making scenes so i'm i'm glad you referenced yeah, that you. uh nate go ahead yeah yeah and and perdita how hopeful are you that this book sort of shows the need to uh you know to support you know different endeavors uh, i know you, you know done a lot of work with like you know with uh you know shelters and and stuff yourself like just to do things that help foster a quality of opportunity yeah so you know in this book i talk about the fact that you know in november of 1987 my mother's pregnant and my sister is around 14 and i'm around seven and because of you know another spat with my dad we show up on the doorsteps of the denise house which is a women's crisis shelter in oshawa ontario 
And that really changed the trajectory of our lives. And the reason, the way it did that is my mother finally had kind of autonomy. She had her own place that was safe. And they gave us a, you know, a co-op unit in Pickering, Ontario, so we had to move. But that's when my mother got traction. And that's truly when the climb to upward mobility began. That's when I first found sport when I was nine years old. But it is important to be able to give back. And, you know, a portion of everything that I make on the sale of this book is going back to the Denise house. Because I want to, one, pay it back somehow. And I don't know that I ever will be able to. I think the way we live our lives is, is paying it back. But I think sometimes there's shame in people admitting, like, my family lived in a shelter or my family needed to go to the food bank. And people feel that there's a stigma around it. And I hope by us saying we needed this place, this place rescued us and saved us, that it kind of dismantles any of that shame that people feel around it. Excellent. Uh, And maybe an awkward segue on my part, but... Switching to sports, I sort of wanted to know, you talked about, I think it was Kurt Taylor being a coach who was like, you are going to run the hurdles. What are the (laughs) subtle but crucial differences in skill sets between a sprinter and a hurdler? (laughs) We're better. I know, I'm going to get in trouble for that from my sprinter friends, eh? So, yeah, you know what? I think the hurdles are so technical. Of course the sprints are technical, but with the 100-meter hurdles, we have, like, this is how I liken the race. So it's 100 meters, there's 10 hurdles. And I look at my lane like a minefield. Each of the lanes is a minefield. And each of those hurdles are bombs. If you make contact with any one of those bombs, they'll detonate. And if they detonate, you'll go down. And so the race is very risky. There's so many built-in hazards into the race. and we need the speed of a world-class sprinter. So you can't just be someone who doesn't have speed and show up the hurdles. You need the speed of a world-class sprinter, but you also need that technical mastery and proficiency. And you need to be able to make decision, decisions at speed. And if you make the wrong decision at speed, it costs you. But if you make the right decision time after time, you can win. And I love that aspect of the sport. Every single uh, takeoff over the hurdle can be different, which means there's so much room for improvement. Well, uh, one race you definitely didn't need any room for improvement on was in 2003 in uh, France when you won the World Championships. I want to ask you about um, that race and, in particular, the the dip, which is described as uh, as you calling uh, your family before the race and them giving you some <laughs> advice on what to do to win, which is kind of contrary to the mechanics that you are are actually kind of trained with. Yeah, so in 2003, uh, I get the World Championships in Paris. I'm the youngest in the 100-meter hurdle final. But yeah, less than probably three weeks before, I was at the Pan American Games in Santo Domingo, and my mom and my brother happened to be watching that race, which was like really the warm-up for the World Championship. And I lost. I got, I got second. And I remember calling my mom and my brother, and they're like, man, you could have leaned. If you leaned, you could have won. So then I took that information to my coach in Paris as we were preparing for the round. And he kind of dismissed that. He didn't want me to lean at the line. He just thought, well, if you're ahead, you don't need to. But I never forgot how adamant my brother and my mom were. And they're not, you know, Olympic level or world championship level coaches, right? But they saw what they saw, and it was so on point. And so I thought, well, Gary doesn't want me to lean, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that information. And if you ever watch that 100-meter final in Paris, in the Stade de France, in August of 2003, you see how I won. I won 
by like the width of a dime based on me just simply leaning and throwing my every, you know, part of my body to the line. Had I not, I would have lost to Bridget Foster of Jamaica, who was right there, you know, on my on my heels or side to side with me, rather, I should say. So that really made a difference for me. And it's something that I, I don't even know that Gary knows this happened, my coach. He does now. Know, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know now. The, you know now. Bad advice, coach. Bad advice. The armchair quarterbacks out there are very happy to hear that. I hear that. Hey, listen, the guy is screaming at the TV sometimes. He he might he might know what he's yes. talking about. Um, yeah, exactly. I'm gonna keep it moving here. Um, and obviously, if we're gonna talk about hurdles, we want to talk about what happened in Athens. And I yeah. I watched your interview with Nam uh, from last June uh, on TVO, and you referred to the Athens race where you know you hit the first hurdle in the hundred meter final, which you had a really great shot at winning and and yeah. you referred to it as devastating at the time and then it turned into a pool to draw from i just wanted to know mm-hmm. when when it became a pool to draw from yeah when did it become a pool or a well of strength yeah well i think that was what the word you used was a well. yeah i think you know the well of strength you know that's a really hard thing because i wish i could give you neil like a point in time and say it was this year and this right i think it was you know, if you think about like a well, you know, like sometimes it can run dry, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it can kind of like get full again if it rains. Yes. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's constantly something that I'm drawing from. But sometimes, you know, the well is fuller on some days than others, mm-hmm. right? And so, but I think the, to answer that the best way I can is it just took years. It took years. But there are moments when I still reach back and I really need to like quench a thirst or really need to, you know, get some strength from there. Mm-hmm. But the well's like not as, you know, deep as I'd like it to be. Right. But it's still there. There's still something, right? Right. And so for me, I think even till this day, like there's some days where Athens feels like a huge sense of honor and pride and I showed my character. And there are still days where I wrestle with the fact that, my gosh, like what would happen if you had just gone over that first hurdle, right? right? And I still wrestle with that. So I don't ever want it to seem like, oh, I'm totally at peace and it's fun and it's great. Like, no, like I'm, I'm candid and I'm honest with it. It will always be the thing that got away. But am I like fiercely proud of how I handled it? Yeah. And I think some people would have used that race to kind of define them and maybe make excuses and that's it. But I'm like, I'm not going to let one day define me. But people mention it and reference it all the time. And I, you know, it can be a euphemism, you know, attached to it. Like, oh, okay, Perdita fell, she fell, she fell. And, and, and that's just been the attachment. Well, it's but cer- it, I'm not. Go ahead. Pardon? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no. I'm not tethered. Yeah, I'm not tethered to that to that day in that way anymore. Well, you certainly aren't at all. If anyone reads this book, you absolutely are not. Um, um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, what did your mom say on the phone to you after you after you fell short in that race? It was a very moving yeah. part of the book. What was her quote yeah. to you? Oh, I have goosebumps just hearing you reference it because it lives in my lives in my in my soul. So the first thing that she said was, "You are the gold." You are the gold. Dry your eyes, stop crying. You are the gold. Moments after I'd fallen in in Greece. Wow. Um, uh, before, let, let's let's break it up with a little humor here, and we'll keep moving it along because I know we're <laughs> we're eating into the time. But let let's break that moment up with a little humor. Yeah. And your entire career may not have happened because of a race with a future Olympic bobsledder. Can you tell us about what happened in grade eight and who you raced against and who beat you? <laughs> yeah, so uh, one of my biggest rivals growing up was 
Shelly Ann Brown. And if you don't know that name, you better get familiar with her because she's a force. But um, we were at the OFSA Championships in high school, and she was my biggest rival. I wasn't a herder herder, but I was a sprinter and 100-meter uh, runner, rather. And she and I faced off. And she be, – actually, no, it's elementary school. I'm taking you back. God, I raced her so many times. <laughs> elementary school. I raced her twice. Yeah. So I'll take you back to the elementary school part. Right. Goodness, that Shelly Ann's still in my brain, hey? <laughs> so in, uh, in grade eight – Yes, I was like from grade four to grade eight. I was like the best in Durham region. But then over the summer going into grade eight, a new girl had moved into our into our town. Shelly Ann Brown still makes me kind of shiver thinking about her. She's so like uh, amazing. But I had won so much and people expected me to win. And so I go into this race at the Oshawa Civic Field and I get beat badly. I get dusted by Shelly Ann Brown. Now, it's not a huge win for her, like meaning a huge margin of error. But when you're like 13, it's your ego. You don't care. And so I quit track after that day because I was so embarrassed about <laughs> being beaten because I'd never tasted defeat before. And I quit track for two years. And and returned successfully. Uh, but wow, it's just funny when you, it's just, to me, that's almost like the whole Michael Jordan not making his, his basket, junior basketball team or whatever. It's just yeah. little things that, yeah. you know, you never, you never, I would have never have known that. Um, so yeah. uh, again, just keeping it moving. Um, uh, sure. You said you said sport uh, found you. You didn't really find sport. Now I'm paraphrasing, but uh, I got to thank yeah. Nam too because I, I borrowed some of these some of the some of the mm-hmm. base for my questions off your previous interview. But can you explain yeah. to us? And I'm sure some people will just be so frustrated knowing that how easily <laughs> athletics came to you and kind of how casually. You took the great news around it. Uh, for example, um, you you know when you were getting all these athletic scholarship letters, I think your boyfriend at the time was kind of telling you, "Hey, like this is a big deal." And at that time, you didn't really look at it that way. And it was the same with, I think, the Olympic trials. You you know you had a real <laughs> shot at making the team, but at the time, it was it wasn't something you're really aware of. So how easily did this sport come to you? You know what I have to. Thank God for perspective. I was just talented. Like, and I can say that now without feeling like it's a cocky thing to say, but I was just really talented. But what what was my talent is when I wanted to turn it on, I was really competitive. I was really hungry. But the problem was I didn't turn it on all the time. I also, because of my mom's experience, right? She was a young woman who came to Canada, um, had a lot of, you know, us as her kids. She didn't have sport growing up. She couldn't have sport growing up. So when I'm starting to do well in sport, in gym class, and, you know, in track meets and whatnot, nobody in my family had a reference for what that meant or what that could do for us, right? Mm. It was like, oh, pretty can run. Oh, pretty can run. Okay. Well, what, who knows about the Olympics? None of my family's an athlete. No one does organized sport. So for us, we didn't really know. And it's what you just said. It was my, my boyfriend in high school who really wanted to get a scholarship and could hardly get any offers. Who was the one who like said, girl, if you don't take this, you're going to regret it one day. <laughs> and then I realized the opportunity. And it was only because between him and my mom, they kept nagging me about it. They kept nagging me about it. And I really, after two years, just wanted it to stop. And so I went back and then it took it took off. Yeah, and one reference point with your um, mother is the the reading you were we were would like you to grace us with Perdita. Now, mm-hmm. just some quick setup. This is, I guess, you're about you're you're in high school. You know, you've dom, dom, dominated at Offsa, which for our listeners outside Ontario was the 
Provincial High School Federation. All, all three of us uh, went to offsite. Although I think my yeah. ba- my basketball playing time probably lasted about as long as a hundred meter run. Yeah, I don't think uh, mine or your experience at offsite would compare not, to not, uh, what not, was happening with Perdita. Yeah, Perdita. The, 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 yeah, we're the one on the spectrum, and you're the, you're the hundred. But yes, that you're, you've got an opportunity. We go with your track and field club to California, but you know it could cost it costs money, and then th- and then this happened. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. So I'll read. Yeah, yeah really. please. I was I was disappointed because I so badly wanted to see what I could do against talented American runners. It made me wish that our family had more money, but I dared not make mom feel bad about not being able to send me on the trip. A few weeks later, I was standing in the large front atrium where all the cool kids hung out after school, and I suddenly heard mom's loud, pitchy voice echoing from the hall. Where's Perdita? Her maternal sonar honed in on me, and she sprang my way Oh, Perdita, there you are, honey, she said, as though tracking me down was some great miracle. What are you doing here? I asked. A dozen or so loitering students were watching us. I wasn't embarrassed, just surprised. Mom never came to my school. I won the jackpot at bingo, she exclaimed. Now you can go to California. Beaming, she stretched her hand out to reveal a collection of crisp $100 bills. It's 500 Now call Coach Taylor and tell him you have the money. Her words dripped with pride, with a syrupy kind of love as she pinched the money into my palm. I was grateful, of course, but I also wondered why mom had to tell me this at school and not at home later. What I failed to realize then was that it meant so much to her to be able to do this for me. She just couldn't wait. (laughs) Wonderful. And I'm torn about, you know, I've got... Mom, a mom who was a, a coach and a sister who was very, uh, very athletic. I'm torn about who who I'm going to buy, buy the book for first. Now <laughs> you buy both. That's the answer. That's, Come that's, on. That, that's true. That's simultaneously. true. Simultaneously. Sorry, it's the Scottish heritage. You know, parsimonious. <laughs> uh, now you can only speak for yourself, but I, I wonder how you know sports athletes of your generation now feel sort of obligated to support and I, you're seeing a lot more athlete activism among the generation that are all now like in their early 20s how 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 much of there is there a sense of you know to sort of you know boost what they're doing in sort of calling out things that they need to cha- see it needing to change Say it again just in terms of like uh supporting mm-hmm. athletes who are activists like but are active right now mm-hmm. like the yeah. next generation. You know, I think there's a I think there's a climate right now where athletes can really use their voice and their platforms without fear of retribution, fear of losing sponsorship and being unpopular. You know, in my era and especially the eras before, my goodness, you use your voice to stand up for your rights or human rights and other things, you're vilified. You know, shut up and, and play ball and dribble wasn't actually too long ago when that was said to LeBron. Right. But I think right now this generation is not going to take that crap. This younger generation is saying, I have this awesome platform. I have influence. I have the ability to change this, you know, social consciousness. And they know there's a lot of responsibility and a lot of privilege that comes with that. And they're just really using it. And I feel really inspired by this generation. I feel really, I feel like they're really empowering each other by doing it. Um, and so I really think that there's, we're not going back. We're not going back to like, don't speak up about things that are going on. Don't, you know, because you're, you're not just an athlete, right? You're a human, you're a black man first, you know, mm-hmm. you're a white, you know, you're sorry, you're a black woman first. 
Mm-hmm. And so those things don't necessarily disappear just because you're an athlete, those problems, those issues in your community. And I think athletes are really understanding that they have a sense of responsibility and they're, they're using it. Perdita, you know what I'm really proud of right now? We are right on time. Uh, we are at the 20-minute <laughs> mark, and we have two questions left. So uh, I'm going to pat Let's myself on the back. Back, back. <laughs> sorry. And I want to... Yeah, I got Nate's told me I always say I want to ask. I'm just going to ask. I got to stop saying I <laughs> want to ask. Um, so your daughter is going to grow up completely different from at least the last two generations of your family, yourself and your mom. So you value the grit that came as a byproduct of your upbringing. Is it possible in any way to pass that on, the grit? Do you want to pass that on to Nova? That is a really, really great question. I've never been asked that by anyone, but I've asked myself every day almost since she's come here because I do feel like my story, you know, the grit of it, the struggle of it, has shaped me and it's actually fortified me. It's made me stronger and better. And I do wonder if, you know, Nova's growing up with a really nice house and she opens the fridge, which she can't open the fridge, but when we open the fridge, there's tons of food there and there's stuff. And she is a lot more privileged than I. And I wonder, am I raising a kid who's going to be like a brat, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And I wrestle with that. And I don't have the perfect answer for you, but I'll tell you what I, where I am with that. I want her to have a lot of the grit that I have, but I don't know if it has to come through struggle. I don't know that it has to come through suffering and watching my mother suffer, although it, it has shaped me and it has scarred me. But I think I can give her some of that strength, how I talk to her, sharing those stories with her, and making her really appreciate the, you know, the struggle that the generations before her had to, to go through to give her the life that she has and that she will have. And so I don't necessarily think that the struggle has to fortify you. I really think it's how you decide to live and how you decide to be and how I can mold her. So I think she will inherit some of that by virtue of being like a Felician woman. She's going to have that. But it is really my job to make sure that Nova really pays homage in how she lives to me as her mom, to her grandmother, and to her great-grandmother who hasn't been here for decades. Um, But I I do think she will have that that grit in her. Well said. And I sort of wanted to ask the Olympics, uh, one question with respect to the Olympics we wanted to ask. Last now I'm doing mm-hmm. it, you know. Uh, <laughs> it, it just uh, the way it's ha- the effect it's had on the ath- the delay is had on the athletes, especially sports yeah. women who have had to, you know, pause life and family goals. Like, what would you hope the public understands about that? Because you know, they're we're all people too, you know. Yeah, it's unless you've lived this experience, this lead up to an Olympic Games. I don't. I think you'll 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 have empathy and you'll be like oh that's really bad and you'll feel it for them but you won't truly understand what they've had to give up it is completely disorienting to have this happen i think the silver lining is if you go into tokyo as an athlete is well everyone's in this boat everyone's in this ship so it's fine but just the the mental aspect of it having to prepare for a whole year in such an unconventional unconventional way is it's heavy it's really heavy then you know the ioc has recently said well no overseas spectators so now you don't even have your support your support 
you know, network there. No mom, no grandpa, no dad, most likely not your husband, your, you know, your aunt, nobody there that knows you. And you'll be in these stadiums that are, you know, probably empty. And we know that we'll feel the support of Canadians like from thousands of miles away. But there is something about the electricity in the stands. There's something about me being in Paris in 2003 in a stadium that's, you know, more than 60,000 people and seeing the teeny tiny Canadian flag up in the rafters in the nosebleeds and seeing that hand just waving that flag for me. One of maybe a, a couple, but it was there. And I saw that and that gave me a little bit of like spark. Okay, yes, wow, goosebumps. They don't have that. Now, does that mean they'll perform bad? No. But the point of it is that they really are losing something and they've lost a lot. And, you know, if you're sending your young child to compete in gymnastics or artistic swimming and they're really young and you as the parent aren't there, I would feel that. Right? If someone said, nobody's going to the Olympics and you can't be there, what? I can't be there? <laughs> so it's disorienting and it's, it's really, really tough. It's difficult. But what I will say is our athletes can get through it and they can do it. And my advice to them is this. I'm 40. I've been through the gauntlet, right? So I can tell you some of the things that I regret, and there aren't many. But the one thing is I would kind of rush to what was next. Like, what's the next championship? Okay, what's the next meet? What's the next thing? And I didn't stop enough to say, well, what is now? Stop and enjoy what is now. Even if Tokyo is not perfect, even if the buildup is not perfect, you don't get this chapter back. You don't get this moment in time back. All you have is now, so really soak that in and do it. And all you can do is prepare as best as you can. You have to leave it at that. You have to be at peace with that. It is what it is. Thank you so much, uh, Perdita. I just want to say in closing, um, first of all, when you read that portion of, uh, of the book that Nate uh, prompted you, I, I wanted to ask you about the, uh, the audio book because I could tell you, you had all the voices down. You were talking like your mom. So I'm <laughs> sure, is that out, the audio book coming out as well? Are you narrating that? Yeah, it's out. So you can pre-order that now on Audible. And I do narrow it, oh. narrate it. My, my, my friends say, you're so pageantry. You're so, I'm like, yes, darling, it's my art. And that's how I present it. So <laughs> I become the characters. I used to want to be like uh, an actress when I was young. So this is me reliving some of that. Um, um, but it's out. No wonder you and Andy uh, vibe so well on Road to the Olympic Games. <laughs> um, one, thank uh, you. In closing, this isn't a question. It's just a closing and, and a thank you. And one thing your mother and daughter can both agree on uh, is that you definitely didn't make foolishness of your life. So thank, <laughs> thank you for uh, joining us today. And uh, uh, yeah, I know you're really busy with the show right now. Uh, all was it all around? Yeah, all around champion. All around champion. Yeah. Yes. So uh, yes, yeah, yeah. We'll let you get back to that. And, and thanks so much. And good luck on uh, the release. I'm sure it's going to be a hit. Thank you both. Appreciate this chat. It was really fun. Thank yeah, you. Thank you, Perdita. Thanks, Perdita. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Thanks. Bye. bye.